0: Jesus, sorry, I'm reading from John chapter 19, sorry to jump the gun there, and if you'll stand with me, we'll show respect for God's word. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. I'm glad that you can be here with us on this chilly morning. Um, you know the scripture tells us to greet each other with a holy kiss, um, but if ever there was a morning to greet each other with a, a holy hug, um, this is probably it. So try and try and stay warm out there. Um as we dive into the core of the message of the gospel this morning um we are here in literally the crux crux meaning cross or crossroads of the book of glory the gospel of John um let's just start with a brief word of prayer if we would for our time together Lord uh, as Scott already mentioned um we ask that we would be transformed um, through the ministry of your word and through the presence and, and power and work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, the who have even grown up around spiritual things, this is probably one of, if not the, most common stories um, that we ever hear in church. And yet we pray that, that that will not be a reason for it to be dull or for it to be... Uh, Wrote or seem like we've been here before, we already know it already. Instead, Lord, we pray that you would touch us again with with the the grace grace. of seeing your passion and making it our own, Um, that you would give us your fire so that we would be not just shaped, um, but emboldened and empowered to take this wonderful message beyond our doors. And we ask this, that Jesus... The one whom we serve and who sacrificed himself for us would be glorified among us. We ask it in his name. Amen. So this morning we are we are here at the moment, um, as we've been talking about for the last couple of, the last couple of weeks, the path the pathway to and then the process of. Jesus' crucifixion, Pastor Scott last week mentions the fact that John sort of, after all the things that he was talking about and explaining in detail about the preparation for Jesus' crucifixion, the trial surrounding it, the actual crucifixion itself, he sort of streamlines the story. He gives sort of some bare details, but not as much detail as some of the other gospel writers. Instead, he focuses on individual things to, again, as is his pattern throughout the gospel, to draw our attention to the call to believe. And you can probably remember, if you've ever been in a situation where you have tried to have a a conversation where you convince somebody of what happened, it could be, you're having a conversation with your kids. You're having an argument about what th- what they think you said versus what you said. Could be a situation where you're talking about a discrepancy with an employer and you're, you're discussing how a certain circumstance took place. You, you sort of reinforce things, right? You go over the same ground over and over and over again. John does the same thing here. He goes over, um, in specific, he goes over a lot about what the Scripture has already said but the focus of this is already captured in a little, in in just almost like a little interlude um, in chapter 19, from verse 35. He says in the middle of talking about where Jesus, um, where Jesus was actually being taken down from the cross and they pierced his side, he points out in verse 35 that. He who saw that has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. It's still the focus. John's going, See it, understand it, believe it. Believe who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We are I am asking you to believe that this shows that our redemption has been accomplished. That the redemption of all who put their faith in Christ has, in fact, already been completed. It has been accomplished. And I want to look at that in three different ways. First, we're going to look at how Jesus is the promise that, that has been fulfilled. Then secondly, that Jesus is the Passover that has been completed. And then finally, that Jesus has brought about the new creation. The new creation has come. So first, if you would, let's look at how Jesus is the promise that has been fulfilled. If you paid attention while we were looking through, while we were reading through these verses, you see that, again... Throughout this throughout this section repeatedly John points out that Jesus did something in fulfillment of the scriptures but even in just these few verses we have three specific references where John where John lists the fact that this was to fulfill the scripture we have it in three different places the first is where he says i thirst and it's interesting to note that he says it he says it here because when he says "I thirst and is given the the wine mixed with the wine mixed with vinegar or the, the wine vinegar or whatever you want to call it sour wine um, earlier he was offered wine mixed with myrrh at the at the start of all this at the start of his suffering and humiliation he's offered wine which mi- excuse me mixed with myrrh that because Uh, a means of deadening pain he rejects that because there's still stuff to be done he still has to go to the cross he still has to bear the full weight of suffering for our sin he rejects it there and yet scripture had had pointed out this fact that the messiah will call out out of thirst in psalm chapter 69 and verse 21 and so he fulfills it here Another one that's listed is later on where it talks about after Jesus is dead that he is pierced with a spear rather than his bones were being broken. So there's two specific references that are there that it mentions that none of his bones will be broken. That comes from Psalm 34 and verse 20. And then that they will look on him whom they have pierced. That comes from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. This is significant in some measure because John is just pointing out to all of his readers, like Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the one that we've been waiting for. Maybe even in our own minds about how we have so much confidence in whether Jesus is the one we have been waiting for, whether he is, in fact, the Messiah that was promised, whether the Bible itself can be true. And so... John points us to the fact that Jesus fulfilled so many of these prophecies. And that allusion can carry us even further to where we look at just how many he doesn't even talk about. How many are mentioned in other places. Um, Scholars, especially traditional, um, faithful, evangelical scholars, would argue that throughout the pages of Scripture, there's a minimum of 300 individual prophecies that are made about Jesus. Jesus as the Messiah, that have been fulfilled. And that's that's not counting ones that are also pointing forward that have not been fully completed yet. But the, if you look at it, you can find 300 specific things, uh, 300 specific references throughout the pages of Scripture that tell us what Jesus would do, and those things have come to pass. That is amazing. 300... 300 different prophecies that span the course of centuries, even millennia, telling us different things that would be true about the Messiah, and they have all come to pass in Jesus Christ. Now, let me compare that with another prophet who sometimes gets a lot of play for different reasons, a guy named Nostradamus. Nostradamus, some people get excited about how some of his some of his prophecies, in fact, several of his prophecies, a lot of people say, have come true. So I want to point out just a little bit of a difference between these two prophets, uh, between, between these two types of prophecies. Nostradamus, one, prophesied about a host of different things. And the fulfillment of those, I'll sort of explain just by, I'm going to list two of them here. So one of his prophecies, he says, Pau Nai Loron. More fire than blood, swimming in praise, the great man hurries to the confluence. He will refuse entry to the magpies. Pampon and Durrance will confine them. That is supposedly fulfilled by Napoleon. Um, he supposedly is the great man that's being referenced because if those first three names, which are supposedly names of Fr- which are names of French cities, if you rearrange them as an anagram, it- um, not only that, but sw- of course swimming in praise, gaining accolades as he came in to conquer France, um, and that then he he will refuse entry to the magpies and the confinement is referencing two uh, Catholic popes that he imprisoned. So that's how supposedly... That pro- those prophecies were fulfilled um, that Nostradamus gave. Another one is this. He says, the young lion will overcome the older one on the field of combat in a single battle. He will pierce his eyes through a golden cage. Two wounds made one, then he dies a cruel death. That is, for those who think it is true, uh, believed to have been fulfilled by the French king Henry II because he went into a... He went into a joust in a tournament um, with, he was the older man. There was a younger knight who he was fighting against. They jousted. Supposedly, they both were wearing lions as part of their crest. When they came together, splinters from the jousting lance of his opponent went through his his helmet, and he was struck in the eye and the temple days later. So this is supposedly a fulfillment done by the prophet Nostradamus. Now, let me run through a list of different things that are instead Prophesied about the Messiah throughout the pages of Scripture if you're interested. This is just a short list This is this is by no means exhaustive, but there's a list out on one of the tables in the lobby Um, There are 44 prophecies that are listed here I'm just not even going to read all of those but just a few that are specifically Referenced in the Old Testament and then addressed in the Gospels themselves so for one That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that's out of Micah 5.2. Another, Messiah would be born of a virgin, that's Isaiah 7.14. Another, that Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. Messiah would be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14. A massacre of children would happen at the Messiah's birthplace, that's Jeremiah 31.15. A messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah. That's Isaiah forty three through five, and we recognize that as John the Baptist. That the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Psalm sixty nine eight and Isaiah fifty three three. That Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Isaiah eleven one. Messiah would bring light. To Galilee, remember, that's the area that he frequently was found, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. The Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. That then the Messiah would be betrayed in Psalm 41, 9, and Zechariah 11, uh, 12 through 13. And that the, the price of the Messiah's betrayal would be then given to the potter, because if you remember, that is what happened, the 30 pieces of silver that are referenced there were given to the potter to buy the field to bury Judas. That's Zechariah eleven, twelve through thirteen as well. Messiah would be falsely accused, Psalm thirty five, verse eleven. Messiah would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah fifty three, seven. Messiah would be spat upon and struck, Isaiah fifty six. Messiah would be hated without cause, Isaiah thirty five nineteen and sixty nine four. Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm twenty two and Zechariah twelve. Soldiers would gamble for his garments, as we've already referenced in the previ- in, uh, last week, Psalm twenty two eighteen. Messiah would pray for his enemies, Psalm 109, 4. And that's just that's not even all of the forty four, obviously. Um, that's just a handful of those. Again, you can find that on the list out there. That's why I didn't um, go slowly through them because you, you will have access to them yourselves. But you can see there's a difference between the two types of prophecies, right? The one, uh, on the one hand, you have Nostradamus who is, let's say, fairly generic. But okay, let's say it's, let's say it's significant in some ways that he, was, he prophesied and these things actually came to pass. If those were true prophecies, yeah, they're, they're fulfilled. But you could also call it coincidence because you could find potentially somebody in the course of history, because he didn't give specificity. You could find somebody in the course of history who would match those criteria that he gave in those individual prophecies. And all of his prophecies were about seemingly different events. Here we have, again, a handful now, but a total of over 300 prophecies about one person given over the course of several hundred, even thousands of years, and they all come true in one person. Even if we're manufactured, we're changed to fit. We have the testimony of, of scriptural texts throughout the centuries that show that scripture hasn't been significantly adjusted, even in the time before Christ. With things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that say that those prophecies out of Isaiah were already there. So the only thing that we can possibly say is either, either the entire thing was a giant manufactured conspiracy by those who wanted to make Jesus the promised Messiah. Which, let's face it, doesn't fit the testimony of history and the activity of the disciples themselves after Jesus' resurrection. Or else... He was exactly who he claimed to be. So Jesus fulfills scripture's promises of the Messiah, and we can believe that he's the one promised. Second, the Passover has been completed in Jesus Christ. And that is to say that the Passover then shows us that Jesus as the perfect Passover lamb satisfies God's wrath and rescues us. So... I don't know if you remember, but a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Chris was talking about the fact that some of the language within this chapter, chapter 19, should point us to the fact that one of the allusions John is making is he's pointing to the image of the Passover being around and the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Passover lamb. In this this text specifically, we have some very specific references that lead us to that. First of all, in verse 29, it mentions the hyssop uh, that they used to put the wine mix, the wine and vinegar on. Right? That doesn't stand out in the Passover narrative a lot on its own, but it should just be kind of a, a, a an attention getter, right? The use of hyssop should be an attention getter because in Exodus 12, where it describes how the Passover is first instituted and what was going to happen, what they were, what the Israelites were commanded to do was to take the blood and put it on the doorpost and lintel of their house and to use hyssop to do that. So it's just, it's just a name that then grabs attention. But then further we get into more explanations that, that call us to attention of the Passover in verse 32 where we're told that this is the day of preparation and that, that the Jewish leaders want to make sure that all, the, that all those who are crucified are taken down from the cross because they don't want it to defile a holy day. So this is the day of preparation before the feast. So this is the day of preparation before a feast. And just like that, we know from Exodus 22, no sorry from Exodus chapter 12 that before there is a day of preparation where the Passover lamb is killed before the Passover itself is to then be taken and to and the excuse me, the grace of the Passover is granted So it calls us to attention there. There's also another thing that's interesting because in verse 36 that that we talked about already where Jesus is said to have none of his bones broken, and that is in fulfillment of Scripture. But it's not just in fulfillment of Scripture about a promise that would happen to the Messiah. It's also one of the descriptions in chapter 12, verse 46 of Exodus. In the preparation of the Passover, the it you don't break any of its bones. So the, the, that no bones were broken, again, calls us to attention that Jesus is, in fact, the Passover lamb. And finally, of course, there's, there's the fact that all of this is rooted around the lamb's death and then blood being applied. And here we have Jesus giving up, the, giving up his spirit, him dying, and his blood flowing when he is pierced with the spear. Kids, I, I want you guys to help us all this morning for a little bit. Um, all those of you who are, are in Treasure Seekers, or in who are of a youth age, or even um, below, if if you would help me this morning, remind us, help us tell the story of what the Passover was all about. First of all, can somebody tell me where was Israel when the Passover happened? Egypt. Egypt. Very good. All right. So they're in Egypt. Why why did the Passover need to happen? The Passover was part of 10 what? Was connected to 10 Spanish? That's that's a good idea, but not in this case. So, in. plagues. What was God doing with the 10 plagues? Punishing the Egyptians. Yes, punishing the Egyptians for what? Enslaving the Israelites. Yes. So, Israel is in Egypt. They've been in slavery to Egypt. For a long time, they've been in slavery to Egypt. And so God decides he is going to rescue them. And he uses 10 plagues to do it, to judge Pharaoh and Egypt for not letting Israel go when they were commanded to. And it culminates in the 10th plague being the death of the firstborn. And so in chapter 12 of Exodus, we're told that, that what happens is God tells them to institute this Passover because what was going to happen is that God was going to come through and strike the firstborn of everyone in the land. And he doesn't make exceptions at first. He is going to strike through all the land of Egypt, every person, every animal, the firstborn of every family, but that there was a rescue that he made for God's people. That if they took the Passover lamb, if they brought it into their house, if they killed it, if they took the blood from the lamb and they put it on the doorpost of their house and then they fed on the lamb as their, as their meal while they waited for Passover to happen, then what would happen is that God would, as he passed over the lamb, the land and sent the destroyer, as, as Moses actually tells them, that as he sends the destroyer from house to house, to slay the first one, he will see the blood, he will know that that house belongs to him, that, that house belongs to God, and he will pass over them, he will save them as a result of this, that this will be a tool for redemption. So carry it forward here into the New Testament where we have this Passover imagery with Jesus, and you can take the same things, you can take the same themes in a much bigger concept and recognize, so what we have is God's righteous wrath over evil and that God is coming to judge evil. And yet, here we have the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus, who dies in the place of others so that the wrath of God, God's judgment upon evil, hits the lamb instead of the people in the house. All those to whom the blood is applied then are given freedom from the execution that would have been theirs. And instead, they are brought out of slavery. They are, they are given freedom from bondage as a result. That is what Jesus is accomplishing. He is giving us freedom, not just from a temporary circumstance, but he is giving us freedom from our sin and being brought into a whole new life where our debt has been paid and we are given eternal life forevermore with him. So Jesus has satisfied God's wrath. He has rescued us. And then finally, we have one more picture, and that's the new creation, that the new creation has come. So right at the very beginning, when when Jesus says, after this, knowing that all was now finished, all was now finished. So he's been hanging on the cross. He's now satisfied God's wrath. We know from other places that during all this time, that to symbolize God's judgment falling upon him, that there is darkness that covers the land. God, so that he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the physical suffering. He experiences the the spiritual suffering. And after it all of it has happened. He recognizes that it is completed. And then he says, it is finished. And he bows his head and gave up his spirit. This should also call our attention to another image. So not only is the imagery of the Passover in view, but there's another aspect. When it mentions the Sabbath, when it mentions the fact that the, it is the day of preparation before the Sabbath, this should call our attention back to the book of Genesis, back to the first two chapters where God creates the entire world, right? So God creates the world in Genesis chapter 1, and at the very end of it, he says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was a morning, the sixth day. That's the day of preparation, right, before the Sabbath. The Sabbath uh, Sabbath day is the seventh day. So God has finished all of his work on the sixth day and seen that it was very good. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all this work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So here we're called back to the original creation. God finishes all of His work on the sixth day. He completes what is necessary, and then He rests. Carry it forward, Jesus on the cross on the sixth day, after going through all, after going through His entire life, showing Himself the perfect sacrifice, after living the perfect life, and now essentially suffering the perfect and being ready to die the perfect death he has finished all of his work it has all been accomplished he says it is finished and then he dies he ends his earthly <clears throat> he ends his earthly sacrificial ministry and now in death he rests so that on the seventh day god will be resting when the sabbath comes What a beautiful picture we have that God has, through Jesus Christ, has brought about a new creation. The first creation brought about the original world, beautiful, wonderful, everything in it was good. And then sin comes along through Adam and Eve, and the world is broken, it's cursed, and God brings about this this restoration plan. If you will, you could certainly make the argument that this new creation is even more impressive than the first one because God does not just take nothing and turn it into something he takes something that is completely hostile to him that is completely opposed to God in its sinful broken cursed state and now re- and now is redeeming it is bringing it back to him is bringing it back into perfection into the original design so Jesus comes along and he's He finishes everything, and now he has the opportunity to rest, and he does. And because of that, the new creation is established so that we can read later on in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, we can read as Paul says in verse 14, "'For the love of Christ controls, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves.'" In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the promise fulfilled here in this moment on the cross. Jesus has wrath and rescued us by becoming the perfect Passover lamb. And he's brought about the new creation so that we may rest and also then enjoy the benefits of becoming ministers of this reconciliation in Christ. This morning, I, I encourage you, if if there's anybody here who has not already bowed the knee to Christ, who has not already put your faith that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah who lived and died for you and who was raised again to prove that the sacrifice for you was sufficient, I implore you to either do it today or to study to search these things to see how true that they are so that you will, in fact, put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you are already in Christ, I hope that you already recognize the fact that you are a new creation So, so that hopefully, just as Jesus was able to rest at the end of his sacrifice, that you no longer feel like you have to strive to earn God's approval. Instead, you recognize that the debt has already been paid. He loves you. He is your father. You are part of his family, and you can rest from your labors, your insecurities, and instead give yourself to ministry out of love and joy. I hope that you'll understand the gravity of what Jesus has done in rescuing you from your sin and the fact that he has broken the power of sin in your life if you are struggling this morning because you have something on your mind, in fact, if I start talking about habitual sin, something jumps into your mind this morning, I pray that you will recognize that Jesus here on the cross didn't just pay for your eternal destiny. He broke the power of sin to hold you captive as the Passover lamb. So I pray that we will grasp that. Recognize and worship him all the more. And right now, as as I invite the band forward, that is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to spend time right now taking communion, having our own Passover meal, uh, to recall to ourselves what Jesus has done for us, what he has given on our behalf, and how it has applied itself to our lives. So, if you're not at all familiar with it, I just want you to, to understand we have three tables, two on either side here and one on the back. Um, there, there are sections for either juice or wine, depending on what is your preference. And there's also cups in, in each one of these, not just for the juice or wine, but also for the bread. So you can come up and you can take those as well. And uh, this is the time where God has invited us through the institution of the Passover, for all baptized believers, all those who are in Christ, as we as we already mentioned from 2 Corinthians 5, uh, all those who are in Christ, if you're a baptized believer, this is for you. Take part in it and enjoy this reflection of what Jesus has done. Feed on him spiritually as we take these elements together. This is also a good opportunity if you want to If you want to give to the church, you can either do that through the offering box at the back or you can do that online. So take take your time, remember Christ's sacrifice as as they sing for us, and then when you're ready, come up and take the elements.